If you are uh, joining us here for the first time or you're uh, here online joining us, um, we are starting this new series where we're looking at some of these ancient words is what we've called them. Old words is maybe a little bit more accurate. Words that maybe, hmm, don't find themselves in the vocabulary the same way that they used to. And so I just want to um, make sure that we get to, are, are on the same page here. And uh, so let's get to the same page together. Let's go to Colossians, and if you brought your Bible with you, if you have an electronic Bible, Colossians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. One of the words that we're starting with this week is the word baptism. One of those words that maybe you don't hear all that often. Not at least uh, outside the church, maybe. So that's where we're starting this week. Actually, this week and into next week, this week we're talking a little bit about why we baptize believers. Baptism can be a little, how shall I say, awkward, difficult to understand. There's a lot of moving parts to it. We had to figure out how to do it. We bought a hot tub. This is not premium seating or something like that for like those people who are generous donors or something. This is, this is for the baptism, but we had to figure that out. There's also the difficulty of, well, there's going to be at least one person who gets wet. And then there's the travel to and from, and you know, there's the whole modesty thing. It's very personal. But how do we deal with this? How has the church dealt with it in the past? How are you supposed to act afterwards, all risen from the dead and such? What does that look like? Today, we seek to understand more of these ancient words. I found myself drawn to the book of Colossians as a book for my contribution to these series as we go over these next few weeks. Colossians is a book that's written to the early church, early Christians, around 60 to 65 uh, in that first century. And this is a church where Paul is in Rome right now as a prisoner. Uh, and he's in jail. He's got a friend named Epaphras who's from this, uh, this place in Colossae there. And it's about 100 miles away. It's, it's far, but not too far. And it's in a part of the world that's just starting to hear the gospel, just starting to understand who this person, Jesus, really is. And so many of these Gentiles, many of these people have never heard of words like baptism before. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the mind of its creator. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 
but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know what pastors in the first century wore uh, on, on Sunday mornings, but I'm not sure that there was a uniform. Um, by this time, most people are finding themselves in a church for the first time or witnessing some things that they just don't quite understand. I mean, they're familiar things to them. They understand all about baths. They understand about having a meal together. They, they get these things, but they just seem to be done a little differently at the church. So how do, you, how do you describe to someone who's never been what baptism is? Well, it's called baptism, okay. Well, you know a bath, right? Yeah? Well, you gather everyone you know for a bath. Really? Uh, well, not, not everyone, well, only if you've never had one before. A bath? Yeah, well, no, not just a bath, but a bath in public. Okay, now this seems strange. No, 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 don't worry, it's not very long, it's, it's over very quickly, just a matter of a few seconds, actually. Well, my mom says that you can't get clean in a few seconds. No, it's not like that, you see, it's kind of a symbol, and actually, well, you wear your clothes and everything. What? Well, well not your clothes, you can borrow some from, from the, from, wait a minute, this is, this I've got to see. No problem. Come on by. It's happening at our church on Sunday. This happens at a church? Yep. It's new. It's called baptism. Now, it wasn't entirely new. We had some people around this time, and when we get to baptism, we'll talk a little bit about some of that history there. But you can imagine how off-putting that might have been for someone. See, we need to explain ourselves a little bit. Baptism is a, is a matter of being marked being set apart. It's not a matter of being perfect, but set apart to live a life growing in faith and in faithfulness to God. It's really, it's being willing to let God dress you. In some traditions in Christianity, it is customary for a priest to wear a priestly collar. You've seen them before. It represents that they've been called to the ministry. Um, it's not a new tradition for a church leader to be dressed in such a way. Um, we've had the priestly robes in the Old Testament, if you go back that way. Um, in the first and second, third century, you get some people called the Desert Fathers. And these people, they dressed, imagine like John the Baptist type sort of thing. Um, they wore simple clothes. And even in our tradition, um, in the Christian Reformed Church, in the Reformed tradition, we have uh, many pastors on Sunday mornings who might wear something like a stall or a robe or something like this. A stall is just a, a colorful, um, I guess, banner, shawl type sort of thing that, that goes across that might mark out a specific occasion. That occasion might be baptism or communion. In all these cases, the religious leaders, they, they choose to wear something that designates them as a religious leader. Um, I choose my bow tie, if you haven't noticed that, as a reminder of my call into ministry. And I've started a tradition of wearing it whenever I preach. I often don't wear one when I don't preach. I've spent time wondering why pastors and why priests did such things. But this passage this morning, and, and a little bit of the verses that follow, if you dig into that today, it, it tells us a little bit, because the Bible reminds us that the Christian is to be set apart, at least in some ways. 
And the Colossian church here was dealing with their own identity issues. And after Paul had been there, he led Epaphras uh, there to, to help them out, continue on in their faith journey, letting them through all the things, and when to open, when to close, all that sort of thing. But they seemed to be less dedicated in continuing their everyday putting on of who Christ was. We know that Paul is speaking to the church because it's indicated by much of what's in the passage and in the context. In chapter 2, which we'll get to in a couple weeks actually, and continuing into chapter 3, Paul connects the passages together with this imagery of death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He does this in the writings to the church in Galatia as well, to the church in Philippi, and even to the church at Corinth. He's trying to instruct the new early believers about this uh, this understanding as to how there's continuity and what this imagery that we borrow from the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ does for us at baptism. The vices that are actually in our text were probably not just the vices of the people of Colossae. They were probably the difficulties of many people in the early church. Paul was just writing them to encourage their holy living kind of in general. And much like many of his 13 letters, they were written in such a time and in such a, uh, a way that they would be shared with other churches as well, within the church community, so that everyone could learn and be encouraged. So it wasn't just this particular city that was dealing with this trouble. You might have heard one Colossian say to another in town, hey, did you hear what that guy in the corner was saying? He said that he had some sort of key, some sort of like uh, key to the mysteries of faith. And these people are a little confused. They say, well, what about Paul? Paul and Epaphras, they're telling us, well, no, 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 but this guy, he's, he's, got, he's got the answer. And we don't know what he knows, neither does Paul. There's no way. It's a special knowledge. Really, I'm not so sure about that. Well, I'm going to check this guy out. He's going to be preaching down the corner. You're going to come? Well, I don't know. Paul was pretty clear that Jesus is the only way to salvation and, and through nothing else. Well, I'm going to go hear him out. See, the Colossian church was being bombarded by these groups of people uh, called the Gnostics who were walking around that they said that they had already had this knowledge about things to come. They already understood all the mysteries of God. And it was a special knowledge curated by this small group that said, if you want it, you have to come and be a part of this. The problem is that they were, uh, these people were stripping down the faith that Paul had introduced to the church. They were tearing it down and now people, uh, too many people were finding themselves looking at each other and then looking at each other, themselves in the mirror starting to wonder who that person was because they didn't remember putting that on that morning. That certainly doesn't look like the Jesus that they had slipped into. Someone had totally stripped them of the hope that came through this powerful image. They were confused by these mazes of words of errant philosophers who were telling the Colossians what to put on and what to take off. Put on, put off the evil of this material world, they would say. What they were doing was telling the Christian what to wear and what not to wear. Now, I'm not sure about you and how you feel about somebody else telling you what to wear. 
someone else dressing you, you know, I like my bow ties. I'm sure that if my wife had her druthers that I would wear a regular tie every once in a while. Call it vanity or pride maybe, but I like my tie. I don't want people telling me what to wear. But it's interesting that this is the language that Paul uses, isn't it? Maybe uh, the analogy works for us today. For a whole week, uh, a blogger named Summer uh, Balesa allowed her two-year-old son to dress her. (laughs) Yeah, some of you just let that sink in. Yeah. She wore mismatched shoes at least one day of that week. One day, the mom was given a few compliments while she went through the store. Wow, that's a lovely little outfit. She made a note and said, well, maybe I'll have to try this one day. Another consideration. Another day, she, uh, she wore uh, an ensemble that constituted three different pieces, each with their own floral pattern, and this motley bouquet of, uh, of flowers that strode down the, the street. Um, she, she had to ask her, her two-year-old, said, why these ones, honey? And he looked up as if it was the strangest question in the world. He said, they all have flowers on them, obviously. The simple philosophy of dress became something that, that this mom became fond of. And with a smile, she blogged to the whole world about her week. I'm sure that many of the choices that had been made for her, she would not consider again. You see, the Christians in our passage were getting themselves in trouble with each other because they didn't care who barged into their walk-in closets and told them what they should wear and what they should not. And in our text, Paul provides really two lists of what Christians shouldn't do. If you look at verse 5 and verse 8. Similar to some of the, uh, the decrees that he has made, the apostolic decrees that we see in a place like Acts, here Paul gives two lists in parallels and says for us to put these to death, put off those shabby rags. But the church was letting the toddlers outside the church walls pick out their clothes. And Paul is reminding them that regardless of who they are, that they are not, they are not their old self. See, it is in Christ that they are already made new. And their actions should reflect that. All this imagery of of taking off and putting things back on was relatively new to the early church. The Galatians, they heard about it. The Philippians, they'd heard about it. And so did the Corinthians. Being in Christ, you are a new creation. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? The old is past, the new is here. And if the new is here, it should show. It should show on the outside. We have these two parallel groups of things that we used to do that should be left in the shabby old three-piece suits of our former attire. You know, lusts in, the, in this coat pocket. Anger and malice sewn into the inner linings over here. But the believers were accessorizing themselves with stuff that just did not go with Christianity. And what Paul is telling the Colossians and telling all of us is that there is a transformation that happens in Christ that will show to the whole world. And it's as if you're dripping wet. Paul uses this language of the resurrection throughout the entire book. 
And he uses this idea, this uh, concept of the already and the not yet, to try and help these people understand the mysteries that they're encountering. And it's something that's developed not only here, but it's elsewhere as well. And he's saying that it's not that we won't struggle with the difficulty of being confused by other people just because some are raised with Christ. No, Paul is saying that because we have been raised with Christ, the already, how we should act should change until the not yet becomes our reality. God is saying, you are my children now, so you can start acting like it. I am yours, and you are mine, so don't be confused. Just get up and put on the clothes that I've set out for you. Paul is reminding the Christian of their baptism, this imagery of dying to sin and rising again with Christ. In the early church, when a baptism would occur, we didn't let people know this in the baptismal instructions, but... um, in the first century at least, people would be baptized naked. (laughs) The imagery was that they came in with nothing at all. Nothing in my hand I bring, right? Only their self. And they would rise. Again, just like Christ in his resurrection, oft times the baptismal tank was sunken and so people would walk down in and rise out the other side. A white robe usually waiting on the other side for anyone coming out of the baptismal pool as a metaphor of sorts of putting on something new, something clean, the filth of our old self gone, the purity of Christ upon us. See, the death that comes in the sin of Adam and the life that comes in Christ's perfection is found in the baptismal pool. Jesus has made provision for not just the not yet. You can live knowing that he's provided for you already. And it may make you say things or do things like say, I want to be baptized. Paul draws our eye not only to baptism, but also to our creation. We are created in the image of God, as 2 Corinthians says, right? The old is past, the new is here. This is part of what's happening in this passage. See, the old was creeping back in, and the church of Colossae knew it. People were sifting through the trash to find their old clothes, all because someone down the street was confusing them about who they actually were. Shouldn't we all want to put on the clothes that Christ has put out for us? robes made out of righteousness and belts made out of truth. We become able to avoid the false prophets, the false philosophies, and we can be captured instead by the grace of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, since you have been raised with Christ, put off the old, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, put on the new. It is so easy for us to get, for us to forget what our baptismal waters felt like. Some of us feel like we don't maybe have that moment where we can point to when we said we put off things ourselves and we put on Christ. We didn't have that dramatic conversion like Paul. Be encouraged. 
We can still find ourselves leaning upon the philosophies of this world to tell us that we don't need to change or don't need to dress for spiritual success today. But another fancy word that we may use here in the next few weeks is the process of sanctification. The process he takes us through putting away the old and putting on the new. Paul is writing to a church that is getting confused, but at the end of this passage, Paul points out to the reality that we all struggle with this. That no matter what our race, what our social status, we can wear the change that Jesus has made on the inside. And it can be displayed for the outside world to see. There's a program on TV, maybe you've seen it before, it's called What Not to Wear, where people who have a difficult time making wardrobe decisions are asked to come to like a place like New York City and, and have a team of experts give them fashion advice. And they dye their hair and they cut their hair, they give them a new look. Many of the psychological issues and emotional issues that cause the small, mousy, 30-something woman from Iowa to wear hoodies and comfy jeans were never addressed or the middle-aged divorcee who wears inappropriate clothing that doesn't quite match her blue hair. But there is never an expert to help deal with the pain of having poor self-image or the shame of being broken and that brokenness causing one to cry one to sleep. Admittedly, everyone looks better when they leave. Everyone does. But what about the inside? That's Paul's question. They've become prepared for another maybe 10 years of ability to repress or maybe deal with some of those difficulties. All the while, friends, God is saying, I want to change you from the inside. I want to give you a whole new wardrobe. No, it may not be Kenneth Cole's shoes or a Hugo Boss shirt or a Vera Wang dress, but it's pure hands, clean heart. Let me pluck you from your hazy reflections and allow you to see clearly the mysteries of faith already and not yet. Friends, if we're raised with Christ, we don't walk around naked or confused. We are not swayed by glittery advertising and slick philosophies. Rooted in Christ, Jesus is permitted to walk into our closets, giving us new clothes and dressing us. He may clothe us with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul reminds us, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this morning, as you either rise from the waters of baptism or you witness, and you may remember your own, you may even Struggle to remember that moment when maybe you were signed or sealed as a child, but remember another. Today, as you tie your bow ties or slip on your coveralls, think of what he's been able to help you shed from your body and what he calls you to wear. That we may wear it well. Many people ask, what does it look like to be died and risen, I think that's what it looks like. And I think that's what makes the waters of baptism a little bit more pure. 
and those old, old words a little more timeless and true. As we approach these waters of baptism, I'm going to invite Cindy to prepare. I'm going to give you some instructions as to how baptism itself well, not only works, but has worked. And not, not a history lesson of sorts, but just so we can all be on the same page together. Ephesians chapter 4 says there's but one faith, one spirit, one baptism. And yet, I know it's been my, uh, my testimony that not always has that unity prevailed. And so in just a moment, as we look at baptism of uh, someone who's testifying as an adult, they're professing their belief. This week and next week we have an opportunity to, on the profession of some, some parents and a family who come bringing a child to be baptized, we, we uh, bring the other part of the baptismal picture to completion as we look at the word covenant next week. In the first century, as I said to you, um, the practice of baptism as described in the book of Acts, oftentimes was in, including adults and many times on Sunday morning, immediately following the service. They would also have communion almost every week. They would also have all their weddings and their funerals on Sundays too. All of that for that day together. All of a sudden communion doesn't become the small little wafer anymore. It becomes something much larger that we partake, right? That's what they did at this time. In the first century they had meals. They met in someone's home. In Colossae, if you're looking uh, for some more information about that, it's most likely in the home of Philemon, uh, someone uh, connected to Paul's letters as well. If you continue to read in your Bible, you'll find that very small little letter about um, a slave named Onesimus. But in this time in Colossae, they were baptizing uh, adults, they were baptizing what seems like families and all this stuff as we uh, look at next week as well. And by the third and fourth century, we have a lot more information written down. By the third and fourth century, we have a Christian, well, uh, basically the Roman Empire has become the first Christian empire. And so there becomes a nationalized religion. And so this process of being able to include people proselytize and include the faith of their fathers and mothers into their families and children. Uh, by the third and fourth century, we have many, many um, accounts of entire families being baptized. Oftentimes, it would it'd be done um, as we see the testimony of the Ethiopian eunuch on, this, on the spur of a moment, on the spur of a testimony. Someone who did not come planning to be baptized like we had the planning going into this morning. By the time we get to um, the 1500s, there's a little bit more of a split as to an understanding as to who should be baptized and whose faith is, uh, is being brought forward and what baptism itself really means. We're going to pick up more of that a little bit next week as we talk about Colossians chapter 2, going back a chapter. Today we will find a variety of practices and for us, like I said, we had to figure this one out and not having like a baptismal tank or something like this back, back here. And next week it'll look a little different, so I invite you to come back and join us for that too. The one thing I can say to you about uh, baptism is that it, it brings many different signs or seals for us. One of those is the one that has been highlighted in our text this morning, the being uh, died in, with Christ and resurrected. But we also know that in baptism, we see uh, the opportunity to 
there's the invitation to join the church. That is another sign or seal that happens at baptism. It's the cleansing of sin. That's the other thing that happens at baptism. And it's the impugning of the Holy Spirit. All of these different signs or seals are, are, uh, are tied to this baptismal act. And so there's a lot of things going on. And so as we encounter baptism, we, we know that um, as a word, you may understand it perhaps only in part this week. So we encourage you to come and join us next week. But I just want to pray now over these baptismal waters. And you, as participants, you have a role to play too. And in just a few moments, I'll give you some instructions about how you respond as the church community welcoming Cindy to be this newly baptized member of the church as well. But before that, let us pray. When I pray, I like to bow my heads and and fold my hands. You guys can do the same thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of baptism, the gift of water. Water nourishes. Water, it cleanses. Water purifies. And so, Lord, we thank you for this gift and in this symbol that in this moment we have opportunity to uh, gather together and testify as to your grace as demonstrated through Cindy. So, Lord, we thank you for this, uh, this gift. We just ask for your blessing upon Cindy, upon this baptism as well that it may be a testimony to all that you have been doing. And Lord, we thank you. Be with us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.